Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, this morning we're in Ephesians, and I want to focus on Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, and ask the question what it means, in verse 10 especially, to witness to the principalities and powers. Let's read together from verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So what does this mean? The principalities and powers apparently need witnessing to. Maybe this is obvious that the powers of this world have gone bad and they need redemption. But if we can see what it is they would do, what story they would tell, what personality, whether it's corporate or individual, they would constitute these principalities and powers, And then how is it that Christian witness would counter this? And so the prime example, I'm going to use the example of the cross and what the witness of the cross would do to the powers. The example here is, let's take the most sacred Christian symbol and see what the powers do. What is it that we remember? What is the meaning? What is it that is behind the cross? It's simply not the bare fact that Christ died. Certainly that's there. But what I would suggest is that there are two alternative ways of remembering or understanding the cross. One of which is biblical and the other which is anti-Christian. For example, if you go to the Air Force Academy in Colorado, the Academy Chapel is built out of what are made to look like jet fighters stacked one on the other. And so the chapel is a menacing looking chapel for the Air Force fighters. If you go into the chapel, as I understand, and you look up at the front, there's what appears to be a cross. But as you approach it, you realize it's not simply a cross, but it's also a sword. This is one of the most prominent ways that the cross has been remembered throughout history. That is, you take this emblem, this symbol of peace, and it's used as a symbol of violence. This actually begins with Emperor Constantine. He was converted to Christianity when he had a vision. They say that his army even saw the vision. And in the vision there is a cross. And he was told to fight under the symbol of the cross. And so we get from Eusebius of Caesarea, he says that Constantine and his soldiers interpreted this to say that if they fight Under the promise of the cross, they will have victory. And so the first two letters, Chi and Rho, Christ's name in the Greek alphabet, was painted on all of the soldiers' shields. You know the Knights Templar? They have the cross on their robes. You see it on shields. You see it on, actually you see it on almost all the implements of war. You'll see the sign of the cross. And the promise that was given to the Knights Templar, it's the same promise that every good jihadi 
is promised. That is, if you die a martyr's death, you die beheading your enemy, you go straight to heaven. And that was the promise. It's emblazoned on shields and on other nationalistic objects, not as a symbol of peace, but as an emblem of war. I was surprised the family when we were in Japan, we visited Nagasaki. Nagasaki, ironically, though the atomic bomb was dropped there, was the center of Christianity in Japan. Actually, there were 26 martyrs crucified in Nagasaki. There was whole clans of Japanese that were Christian. And I was surprised in the museum, I'd never seen this, that the, in the Shimabata Rebellion, the cross was emblazoned on the shields of the soldiers in the Shimabata Rebellion. And so the cross became an emblem of violence and war throughout the world. Now what's the other image? When you, you know, the red cross, maybe that's the symbol that we think of as the sign of neutrality. When we see the red cross, maybe this is closer to the original meaning, that it's neutrality. It's the refusal to, you know, there's no war, there's no violence. If you see the sign of the cross on the red cross, then you know, okay, they're not for either side. And of course, this is picturing Jesus' refusal to resist. You know, at the trial with Pilate, he said, you know, I could call down a legion of angels to fight if I chose, but my kingdom is not that sort of kingdom. It's not a violent kingdom. And so the cross was a sign originally of non-resistance. Jesus tells Peter before his arrest, put away your sword. And then they took him. And so many have seen the cross as a sign that swords and violence are not the answer. But the problem that the cross was meant to overcome. In the first use of the cross, the actual meaning of the cross is forgotten. It's simply forgotten by the context in which it's used. The meaning of the cross is to end the war between God and man. It's to end war between people. Instead, it's been changed into an encouragement of war. Instead of Christianity, as we've read in Ephesians, bringing all people together, Jews and Gentiles, and all peoples into one body, the church, the cross becomes symbolic of their violent division. And so in one use of the cross, we actually lose the meaning. The cross can be plastered all around. And in the symbolic use of it, we lose the meaning that it's supposed to convey. And my point here is this process that I've just described is all around us in the fact that we imagine we see the bare fact. In the way that we see it, there is a cover-up. We're deceived. The way we remember things, the way we construe facts, ultimately determines what sort of people we are. And in Ephesians, Paul is describing the principalities and powers as the spirit or personality of a country, of a group of people, which is larger than the sum total of its parts. Any group of people, any nation, takes on a power that the individuals just fit into. And the peculiar spirit or power, I've encountered this you know, you almost have to leave the United States and come back before you see it. But I saw it in Japan. It was quite remarkable, you know, when I first saw it in Japan. 
And then I came back to the United States and I saw the same thing. And it's this power to blind people to their own history, to their own reality, whether it's war crimes, the enslavement of other people, and as a result of this blindness, it's not a harmless blindness, they continue to oppress people. And of course right now, thinking of the present moment in which the blindness to racism is being made evident. And the way we remember can sometimes mean the way we forget, obscure, in other words, what we remember may itself be a kind of blindness. Let me give you a large-scale example of this. And this is the difference of the way that World War II is remembered in Japan and Germany. Immediately after World War II, Japan and Germany had a very similar understanding. Everyone there would say, we are the victims of this war. We're not the perpetrators. And this is still true in Japan. Everyone was a victim. They were the victims of their military. They were the victims of their governments. And very few admit to any sort of guilt on the part of, first of all, the emperor. They say, oh no, that wasn't the emperor that did that. Or their own family members that maybe participated. Or themselves. Now the difference in Germany is that they've also, that's where they begin. They had this kind of victim mentality. And they would count themselves the worst victims. And of course we know the reality looking back at it. You can just see the masses of people. The crowds supporting the rise of Adolf Hitler. There's a philosopher Susan Neyman who's just written a book. And she's describing how the Germans over a period of 20 years, two decades, have confronted their past. And we can see this obviously. You know, uh, there are no statues of Adolf Hitler glorifying Hitler. There are official acts of remembrance. There are memorials to the Holocaust and even reparations that have been made to the victims. If that had not happened, Germans would see themselves even today as the victims of Hitler rather than the supporters of Hitler. And of course the price that you pay in that misinterpretation of history is that they would continue blindly to imagine that they were not complicit and right-wing governments would continue. I think it's very similar to the order, uh, you know, the way Southerners who continue to imagine of the lost cause of the Civil War. They still think that the Civil War was a just and heroic war on their part. And so maybe if it weren't for that 20 years, you know, it wasn't just one thing. People wrote books, all sorts of politicians played a role in this that deconstructed German history. If this had not happened, maybe you could go to Germany today like you can go to the southern states of America and you could see statues glorifying National Socialism and Adolf Hitler, but they're absent. Because of the work of clergy, of survivors of the war, the production of films and books, and the pressure, you know, in East Germany and West Germany, this worked out very differently. There were different reasons. But nonetheless, they all exposed that history. And they abandoned the narrative, oh, we Germans were just victims. And so there's a growing self-awareness and broad German acknowledgement of complicity in the rise of Hitler 
in which people said we were guilty. This self-awareness of any acknowledgement of corporate guilt, it's missing or almost completely missing in Japan. And even as I say this, I know there are exceptions. But there's a kind of blindness which is intimately connected to the history of Japan, the dominance of right-wing politics in Japan today, and attitudes in educational institutions and in the culture as a whole. The Japanese equivalent of Nazi memorials or of Confederate statues is the Yasukuni Shrine commemorating Hideki Tojo, the wartime prime minister, 13 other war criminals, and also millions of war dead. You know, they're all deified in Yasukuni Shrine. And nearly every government since the end of the war has worshipped at Yasukuni Shrine. The symbolism of that act is to say, we are true to this right-wing, militaristic, emperor-worshipping nationalism. And these same governments have continued to cover up war crimes. You've probably never heard of Unit 731. We all know about Auschwitz. We all know about the Holocaust. Why do we know those things? Because someone took the trouble to expose them. But we don't know about Unit 731. We don't know about the war crimes that were committed in Japan because someone covered them up. And we remember, even we remember that war because of the way it's been told. And so even in Japan, they've resisted, you know, children in school. One writer of textbooks put in the textbook uh, that the aggression into China, and of course the government wanted to change that, said it wasn't aggression that brought the Japanese into China. It was an advance, a more gentle word. And of course the focus has been, and, and I'm not in any way denying, the great crime of the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But of course that's probably the main story, the only story that you'll get. While we were in Japan and our children were in the local school, the education ministry mandated the singing of the Kimigayo, which is the Japanese national anthem. And you sing the Kimigayo before the Hinomaru, the national flag. And the Kimigayo subtly indicating the deity of the emperor. It's a very loaded song at graduations. And I, we went to school functions where our children, I don't know if our children actually sang it, but they were supposed to. And so state powers are at work in institutions, in corporate culture, this comes through in, in schools, in the, the way it comes through in the workplace, in the particular focus of people's thinking. And the point being that personal attitudes, corporate attitudes, the political reality of the country are all quite interconnected and traceable in people's lives. You can explain why people think the way they think. There are powers, there are principalities that are generating this sort of understanding. And of course, in the recent controversy in this country over the Confederate memorials, part of what is under contention is the way we remember our history and what sort of country this is. You know, this moment may be very telling. Certainly there are extremists who are indiscriminately tearing down any form of remembrance, 
But for black people in the South, the Confederate memorials symbolize a period of oppression and slavery. And you don't have to read very much, you know, just think a little bit. And even the slightest acquaintance with the history of the Confederate States dispels, you know, you could just ask people, oh, what was the Civil War about? Oh, that was about states' rights. Oh, really? That's what that whole thing was about? Let me give you, this is the vice president of the Confederacy. And he gives a speech, and it's called the Cornerstone Speech, in which he explains the point of secession. This man's name was Alexander Stevens. He says, we have to correct the United States Constitution. The Constitution, he says, rested upon the equality of races. This was an error. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. Thus it's called the cornerstone speech. And Stevens goes on in the speech, he deploys biblical language describing Christ to describe slavery as the cornerstone of the Confederacy. Here's the quote. This stone, which was rejected by the first builders, is become the chief cornerstone, the real cornerstone in our new edifice. What? Slavery. The reason for secession and the resulting war, he says, was to establish a new government upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. I've often wondered, you know, if given enough accurate information, and sometimes I think it's just accurate information that we're lacking, if we could determine, I, I remember when I was a child, I moved to Texas. And I thought, this is a peculiar place, Texas. We lived in a little town. And I thought, if you could get the history, if you could get the facts, maybe you could explain why people think the way they think. Part of this, I remember my, my father describes his own hometown. And he describes a strange story. He tells as a boy, speaking to the civic leaders in his hometown. I won't tell you the place. But they were all involved in killing, and I'll give you the reason why, but all of the civic leaders, they go out and there's a family, they're called the benders, the bloody benders, and they go out and they burn the family, burn them alive. You can look up the bloody benders, nobody knows what happened to them. And of course the benders, they ran a, an early version of a bed and breakfast in southern Kansas after the Civil War on the Osage Mission Independence Trail that operated from Independence to Fort Scott. And the Osage Indians were forced out of the area. It's in actually Labette County in southern, southeast Kansas. And of course they were vacated is the, the picture. Think here of the Japanese picture of not invasion but advance. And land was made available to homesteaders and there were a group of spiritualists that moved in to Labette County. There were about five families. And one of these families was the Benders. And part of the setting, you know, you got to think of the times in the 19th century. Southeast Kansas was the place that the abolitionists and the slaveholders were in battles long before the Civil War. In other words, they were already fighting. 
And so the free soilers and the slavery advocates. And then we're, we're in this territory and then the Civil War and there were these bloody struggles and then after the Civil War, if you remember, I'm just describing Kansas, you know. We always think of Kansas, boring Kansas. But think of the James Gang. Think of the Daltons. There were these roving bands of terrorists. I mean, that's really what the James was, were, right? They were southern terrorists. And they had been exposed to the extreme violence of war. And they continued their violent ways. Once you put into place all the events of this little place in Kansas, and then you put in John Bender, his wife, Almira, their son, and by the way, that really wasn't a family. There were only two people related in the family. Their daughter, Kate, they say Kate was quite beautiful, but she was a healer and a psychic, and she gave lectures on spiritualism. She would conduct seances, and her mother, Almira, also, and they could communicate with the dead. She advocated free love and justifiable murder. Sometimes you just got to murder somebody. And they built a small one-room cabin on Bender Mountain. And they partitioned the inside of the cabin. They put up a big canvas. And they had the living quarters in the back. And in the front, they had a store with supplies. And they were on the trail there advertising. They had advertised groceries for sale. And that one of the signs said, a very safe place to sleep. And people began to disappear in Labette County, Kansas. Some 20 people disappeared and they began to trace them and they all disappeared at the Bender cabin. <laughs> but Kate would charm the guests. You know, they'd seat them with their back to the canvas. She would kind of maybe do a seance or some sort of spiritualism. The, the father was named John and the son was named John. They said that the, they were both huge men, over six feet tall. And they had a hammer and they'd hit the person on the head with the hammer. And then Kate would slit their throat and they'd throw them in the cellar. And then they found all these bodies. Okay, so that's the, the, this, this terrible history. And of course, that's the explanation to why the founders of this city, they corporately agreed to get rid of the benders. That's a long story to, to make a very simple point. That I think if we could trace the history, if we could say, this is what occurred, and these are the events that were involved. You know, the long history of slavers and abolitionists, the forced removal of the Osage Indians, the Civil War, the rise of the marauding gangs, and then the coming of the vendors, and then a communal slaughter, and then the founding of a town. This is the way the local record reads. A decade after the gruesome killings, nothing was left of the cabin and outbuildings of the property, the only thing remaining is an empty hole that had only once been the cellar. From these depths allegedly came the souls of those murdered on the site, wandering about the property and making moaning sounds that could be heard by passerby. You know, if you could create a kind of psychoanalytic research, somebody who could gather all the information, that communities of people or individuals or countries are often gripped by a malign force. I think we could find out what community, how it imagines itself, what it's built upon. Think of the Germans destroying the Jews. Think of any group of people. There's always the enemy that they've killed. Think of the enemies of Christ. They had to kill him. 
And this final act of violence, it's always a redemptive act. The very act related to the founding of Rome, the founding of many cities, the founding of nations, is a founding in blood and violence. The violence that saved and the myths that surround this violence, I think it impacts all the people that come into contact with this understanding. And so given the right tools, I believe the story could be told of how the personalities, the schools, the churches, the communities in which we all have our lives, they can be exposed. And of course, they can be lives that in some way misshape us or maybe that we're nourished. But I believe there is a hidden center and idolatrous violence which corruptly organizes the powers. You know, we see this with people who are said to be possessed, those suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, those subjected to violence and oppression. They're going to bear traceable marks of their trauma. This is the study of Lonnie Athens. He's interviewed hundreds of violent criminals and he's discovered that those who commit the worst crimes of violence have themselves been exposed consistently and predictably. It almost becomes mechanical. You experience this level of violence, there is going to be a result. You don't just experience trauma without some effect from that trauma. And this would hold true for corporate personalities or what Paul refers to as the principalities and powers, states, towns, they must bear a peculiar history that explains how they may have gone bad, maybe why they're good, or maybe why they're demonic. In Japan, you know, certainly religion is clearly at stake at Yasukuni Shrine and the peculiar nationalism. It's religious nationalism. In Germany, it was clearly something on the order of a religious blindness, even though it was not in the name of religion. But it functioned, National Socialism functioned like a religion. In my picturing, you know, of how you explain my little home, my father's hometown, uh, it becomes traceable perhaps to a genealogy of violence in a community founded on an original violence in individual lives. Maybe we require, we expect heroic ancestors, a heroic nation, a heroic history, and maybe just at the very least, we see ourselves as victims of violence, like the Germans or the Japanese, rather than its perpetrators. It's very hard to count ourselves complicit, right? That's the hardest thing for us to see. Confrontation with this lie, I believe, is what Paul means when he talks about the exposure of the principalities and powers in the cross of Christ. This is a powerful force at work in the world and in the cross we have a powerful force that is exposing this deception that is so often foisted upon us. And so what we tell ourselves, our identity, I believe that must be the essential part of what Paul describes as the exposure and witness to the principalities and powers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. 
please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.